Good morning, friends. Happy day after Christmas. Today's message, uh, kind of in between uh, Christmas and uh, into the Epiphany season, uh, the title of my message is The Forgotten Chapter. Now, I know that there are a lot of parts of the Bible that many people kind of tend to overlook. I mean, Leviticus, <laughs> some people are not even going to dig into that book at all. But there are some other chapters that people, for some reason, overlook. Now, the question would be, why? Well, I have a couple of reasons, I guess. One is we don't know what to do with that chapter. Uh, two, it's, well, it's just not often read in public. And third, hardly anybody ever memorizes these passages. And four, to my knowledge, some of these passages have never been set to music. So what is the forgetting, forgotten chapter today? Well, it's Matthew 1. It's a great example. It's just a long list of names, starting with Abraham, moving on to David, and ending with Jesus. And in between are some names we recognize, like Jacob and Solomon and Jehoshaphat. And many more we've never heard of, like Hezron, Abiud, and Azor. Now, the structure is simple. So-and-so was the father of so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so, etc., etc., etc. And so it's just one name after another, a listing of the generations of the Hebrew people from their father Abraham to the Messiah, Jesus. And as history, the list is, it's kind of fascinating for both of us, but most of us, that's about as far as it goes, unless you happen to know the Old Testament. But even that may not help because many names and some names in Matthew 1 are completely unknown to us, particularly the ones in the last few verses. And since most of these men uh, lived in the intertestamental period, we know nothing about them except their names. Now, for many people, we may call this the forgotten chapter of the Christmas story. We routinely skip it in order to get to the good stuff, like in Luke chapter 2. But the Jews of the first century would have been quite surprised by that kind of attitude. I mean, to them, the genealogy would have been an absolutely essential setting for the story of Jesus' birth. I mean, the Jews routinely paid close attention to questions of genealogy. Uh, for instance, whenever land was bought or sold, the genealogical records were consulted to ensure that land belonging to one tribe was not being sold to members of another tribe. Now, genealogy was also crucial in determining the priesthood. The law uh, specified that the priest must come from the tribe of Levi. I mean, genealogy also helped determine the line of heirship to the throne. That explains why in Ezra 2, <laughs> probably another forgotten chapter, and Nehemiah 7 contain lengthy listings of the various people returning from captivity. And as the Jews reestablished themselves, it was crucial that they know which families had historically held which positions in the nation. Now, that same principle applies directly to the Christmas story. In Luke chapter 2, uh, verses 1 and 3, it says, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And then it goes on and says that everyone went to his own town to register. That meant that each man must return to his ancestral hometown, the town from which his family had originally come. But the only way you could be sure about your ancestral hometown was to know your genealogy, which is why Mary and Joseph had to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They had to make that long and dangerous journey because Bethlehem was Joseph's ancestral hometown, a fact that they knew from studying their genealogy. 
Now, you may readily grant all that I have said and still wonder why we should study this passage. And although it is important 2,000 years ago, what relevance does a whole long list of names have today? Well, let me start out by suggesting three answers to that question. Uh, Here's answer number one. It establishes Jesus as part of the royal family of David. Now, there's no doubt the central purpose of Matthew 1, verses uh, 1 through 16. To a skeptical Jewish reader, no question would be more central to his mind. I mean, God had said a thousand years earlier in Second Samuel that the Messiah must come from the line of David. In the time of Christ, Jesus wasn't the only one claiming to be the Messiah. Other men were running around claiming to be Israel's Messiah as well. Now, how would people know who to believe? Well, one answer, check his genealogy. If he's not from the line of David, forget it. And that's why Matthew 1 begins this way, a record of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. David is listed first, even though chronologically Abraham came first in history. Now, you might ask yourself, why is that? Well, it's because the crucial issue was not, is Jesus a Jew, a son of Abraham, but rather, is he a direct descendant of David? In order for Jesus to qualify as the Messiah, he must be a literal, physical descendant of David. Jesus' right to the throne, if you will, is determined by his genealogy, which establishes beyond question that he is indeed a literal descendant of King David. Well, second of all, it demonstrates that Jesus had historical roots. Galatians 4.4 4 says, But when the time had fully come... God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law. Now, fully come has the idea of uh, fruit ripening for the moment of harvest. This is kind of kairos. It's a, you know, when the fullness of time had come. Uh, That is when God had perfectly prepared every detail of history, he sent his son into the world. Now, historians have known for years that at the time of Christ, there was a widespread expectation that something was about to happen. Now, the now extinct religions of Greece and Rome held out hope that a deliverer would come from heaven. The Jews themselves knew that the Messiah would come according to the prophecies. The Persians studied the heavens and knew the time was at hand, which kind of explains the wise men. There was a desire, there was a hope, there was a yearning, there was a deep feeling throbbing in the heart of humanity that someone must appear who would radically change the world. Now, they weren't consciously expecting Jesus, but the yearning was undeniably there. And into that expectant world, God sent his son at just the right time, in just the right way. Now, Matthew 1 tells us that Jesus had roots. He had a family tree. He didn't just drop out of heaven or magically appear on the scene, but at the perfect moment of history, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Jesus had a human family. He had a mom, a dad, and a history. He's not some fictional character like the Roman gods on Mount Olympus. No, or the Greek gods, perhaps. No, he was a real person born into a real family. Galatians 4, verse 4 teaches us that behind it all stood God superintending the whole process. That's what Matthew 1 is teaching us. Jesus had roots. He had a history. He had a family. He came from somewhere. And a third answer to the question is, it's a chronicle of the grace of God. Now, if you study these names in detail, it's almost as if God had pulled together a rogues gallery. 
Now, I've already said that we don't know about every person on this list, but the ones we know about, well, nearly all of them had notable moral failures in their spiritual resumes. For example, Abraham lied about his wife, Sarah, twice. Isaac did the same thing, like father, like son. I mean, Jacob was a cheater. Judah was a fornicator. David was an adulterer, and Solomon was a polygamist. Manasseh was the most evil king Israel ever had, and we just go on and on and on. Uh, So this is not a list of (laughs) saints, far from it. Uh, Some weren't even saints at all. The best of these men had flaws, and some were so flawed that it's virtually impossible to see their good points. Now, how does that show the grace of God? Well, I think pretty simple. It shows the grace of God because people like this make up Jesus' family tree. I mean, a murderer is on the list, a fornicator is on the list, an adulterer on the list, a liar is on the list, a deceiver on the list. Think about that. Most of these men were very great sinners. Well, that brings me to my second major observation about this list. It includes four women. Now, that in itself is unusual because when the Jews made a genealogy, they normally did not include women. They just traced the family tree from father to son and father to son and father to son. But Matthew includes four women in Jesus' family tree. They are, in verse 3, Tamar, Rahab in verse 5, Ruth in verse 5, Bathsheba in verse 6. All of them... Well, they're very unlikely people. With the exception of Ruth, none of them possessed what you'd call an exemplary character. Let's just, let me just give you a little bit of background on these women. First of all, Tamar. Her story, unknown to most of us, is found in Genesis 38. Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah, who was the son of Jacob, a grandson of Abraham. Now, all you need to know is that Judah had a son named Ur, who married a Gentile woman named Tamar. Ur died and his brother Onan rose up to do his brotherly duty by marrying Tamar. But he too suddenly died. Interesting story. You can read about that some other time. Leaving Tamar both husbandless and childless, a kind of a twin curse in those days. So because she was impatient and unwilling to wait for God to supply her need, she kind of hatched a scheme to cause her father-in-law Judah to sleep with her. Her plan was simple, dressing up as a shrine prostitute. She seduced Judah. Of course, I've always wondered, what's Judah doing going to a shrine prostitute? But she seduces him there into sleeping with her, whereupon she becomes pregnant and gives birth to twin boys, Perez and Zerah. Now, when she confronted Judah with the truth, he said, rightly, she is more righteous than I. Indeed, no one looks good in this story, which reeks of greed and deception and illegitimacy and prostitution and sexual lust and, yeah, even a hint of incest. I mean, whatever you can say about Judah, and it's not very good, you cannot by any stretch of the imagination make Tamar look good. She's only less bad than her father-in-law. But what she did was evil, immoral, and wrong. She truly acted like a prostitute, even if she wasn't one by trade. Now, that's about all we know about Tamar. There really isn't a happy ending to the story. She's a footnote in biblical history, and not a good one at that. I mean, the story of her encounter with Judah is a story of human frailty and weakness of the sinfulness of human flesh. I mean, that people like Judah and Tamar would be included in the line of the Messiah sends a strong message about the pure grace of God. Neither one deserved it, but both are on the list. 
Well, second, we come to Rahab. Now, most of us know more about her. In fact, she's almost always mentioned by a certain phrase in the Bible, a phrase most of us know by heart, Rahab the harlot. But that's not all. Rahab was also a Canaanite who were the hated enemies of of Israel. Her most exemplary deed was the telling of a lie. I mean, think about it. A prostitute, a Canaanite, and a liar. You wouldn't think she should have much of a chance of making the list, but by golly, here she is. Her story is tied in with the larger story of Joshua's conquest of the walled city of Jericho. When Joshua sent spies into the city, Rahab hid them in her house. In exchange for safe passage out of the city, they promised to spare her and her household when the invasion took place. All she had to do was hang a scarlet cord from her window so the Israelites could identify her house. So she agreed, hid the spies, and when the king of Jericho sent messengers asking her to bring out the men, she lied and said, they already left the city, even while they were still hiding on the roof. So she let them out of a window with a rope, whereupon they returned to Joshua. Now, it's a great story with many lessons, lessons, but we mustn't miss the point that Rahab was a prostitute. That was her trade. The men hid there because people would be accustomed to seeing strangers come and go at all hours of the night. We also can't deny the fact that Rahab told a bald-faced lie. Is there anything good we can say about her? Well, yeah, she was a woman of faith. You don't have to take my word for it. Hebrews 11.31 says, by faith, Rahab. So she was a believer and her lie was motivated by her faith. Now, when the invasion came, she was spared, and in the course of time, she became the great-great-grandmother of, well, guess who, King David, a prostitute, a Canaanite, and a liar, but also a woman of faith. She made the list, and she's part of Jesus' family tree. Now, third is Ruth. I mean, the most significant point about Ruth is that she, too, was not a Jew. She was, in fact, from the country of Moab, and that takes us way back to Genesis 19 and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And on that horrible day, Lot escaped Sodom with his wife and two daughters. His wife turned into a pillar of salt, but Lot and his daughters hid away in a cave. Now, his daughters evidently had been badly affected by their time in Sodom because they conspired to lure their own father into sleeping with them. And so on successive nights, they got good old dad drunk and slept with him. Both sisters got pregnant and gave birth to sons, one named Moab and the other named Ammon. Now, those two boys, born of incest, grew up to found nations that would eventually become both incredibly evil as well as bitter enemies of Israel. The Jews hated the Moabites and the Ammonites and wanted nothing to do with them. And the book which bears her name tells of the romance that blossoms between Ruth, the Moabitess, and Boaz, the Israelite. What an odd couple. But in God's providence, they were brought together in marriage. They had a son named Obed, who had a son named Jesse, who had a son named, guess what, David, making Ruth David's great-grandma. And that's how a person from the hated nation of Moab entered the line of the Messiah. Well, there's one more. Her name is Bathsheba. The last woman is not mentioned by name. Uh, She's, however, clearly identified as the woman, quote, who had been Uriah's wife. Now, the story of Bathsheba's adultery with King David is so well known that I don't need to repeat it here. Suffice to say that adultery was only the beginning. 
before the scandal was over, it included lying, a royal cover-up, and ultimately murder. And as a result, the child conceived that night, died soon after birth, and David's family and his empire began to crumble. Now, we know eventually David married Bathsheba and had another son whose name was Solomon, the wisest, smartest man who ever lived. And quite a result for a union that began in adultery. Now, there's a, there's dirt all over this episode, but don't miss the main point. Bathsheba made the list. Her name isn't there, but she is mentioned nonetheless. Now, before going on, let's just think about these four women for a moment. Tamar, incest, immorality, feigned prostitution, a Gentile. Rahab, harlotry, lying, deception, a Canaanite. Ruth, a woman from Moab, a nation born out of incest, and Bathsheba, adultery. I mean, four unlikely women, three are Gentiles, three are involved in some form of sexual immorality, two are involved in prostitution, one is an outright adulteress, and all four are in the line that leads to Jesus the Messiah. Wow. Why would God include women like that in his list? But you know something? It's not just the women. We could recount the sins of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. They were sinners too. Why include people like that? I think there are three answers to that question. First of all, he did it to send a message to self-righteous people. I mean, Matthew was written especially to the Jews. Many of their leaders, the Pharisees in particular, were self-righteous and judgmental towards other people. They truly thought they were the only ones who deserved eternal life. What a shock then it would be to read this genealogy because it's filled with liars and murderers and thieves and adulterers and prostitutes. I mean, not a pretty picture, not a clean family tree. Uh, This list was a stinging rebuke to that kind of judgmental self-righteousness. You know what this means? Jesus was born into a sinful family. He came from a long line of sinners. And second, he did it so that God's grace might be richly displayed. Now, if you come from a family like this, you can't exactly boast of your heritage. I mean, sure, your ancestors were rulers and kings, but man, were they ever big sinners. So the question is, can a prostitute go to heaven? Yes or no? Can an adulterer go to heaven? Can a murderer go to heaven? Can a liar go to heaven? If you, friends, you better say yes, because Rahab and David are both going to be in heaven. And Rahab was a prostitute and a liar, and David was an adulterer and a murderer. See, when you read the stories of these four women and of the men on the list, you aren't supposed to focus on their sin, but rather on the grace of God. The hero of this story is God. I mean, the hero of the Bible is always God. His grace shines through the blackest of human sin as he focuses on flawed men and women and places them in Jesus' family. Well, third, he did it so that we would focus on Jesus. Many people are intimidated by Jesus. They they hook him up with a lot of religious paraphernalia, you know, big sanctuaries, stained glass, beautiful choirs, pipe organs, formal prayers. Uh, rock music that doesn't carry scripture and all kinds of nonsense. And when they look at that trappings, it's all very intimidating to them. To many people in the world today, Jesus just seems too good to be true. So there's this genealogies in the Bible that let us know that he had a background a lot like yours and mine. He called himself the friend of sinners, and he said he didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. He says in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, my final point should greatly encourage you, even if it should encourage me. No matter what your past, Jesus can save you. 
Any murderers listening to these words, any prostitutes, any adulterers, any liars, any cheaters, any angry people, any thieves, any hypocrites. Well, I think we can find our names in that list as well. But there's good news. No matter what you've done in the past, Jesus can save you. If a prostitute can be saved, you can be saved. If a murderer can be transformed, you can be transformed. If an incestuous person can be saved, then there's hope for you. No matter what your past looks like or your present feels like, no matter where you've been or what you've done, God can give you a fresh start. Let's be honest, there's a lot of dysfunction in Jesus' family tree. There's a lot of brokenness and a lot of pain. He knows exactly what we are all going through this year at Christmas time. Friends, I hope you won't skip Matthew 1 in your Bible reading. This unlikely list of unlikely people may be the greatest chapter on the grace of God. In these forgotten names from the past, God turns the spotlight of his holy grace on fallen men and women. And through their lives, we see what the grace of God can do, not only for them, but for us as well. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, feel the passion. God bless.